I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to episode 4040 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Now, my first experience of Paul Weller Live featured my latest guest, although it was as a support act rather than band member at the time. Damon Minchella was a founding member of Ocean Colour Scene with Simon Fowler, Oscar Harrison, and with the legendary Weller collaborator, still to this day, Steve Craddock. Damon went on to play with Paul Weller during the 90s and noughties, switching between bands as they played to millions across the planet. Hey, he even worked with The Who, Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page, Dr. John, Amy Winehouse, Richard Ashcroft, Steve Steve White, Mick Talbot, and Matt Dayton. So let's get into it. Damon, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Although I should say Dr. Damon, but we'll get on to yeah. that very soon indeed, sir. I'm so excited about this, I have to say, because you were there for such a key period of Weller's career for me. From the first moment I discovered him live, and I'll talk about that in a sec, to so many great nights out, live gigs, live performances, both with Weller, but also with the um, motion colour scene as well. Yeah. So we'll get we'll get into that. But first of all, I, I want to understand when you first discovered a love for music and also when you first discovered the music of Paul Weller. So let's kick off with that. When did Weller first enter your world musically? So well, I got into music seriously when I heard a song by Echo and the Bunnymen called The Cutter on Radio 1 while I was having my cereal, probably cornflakes. <laughs> so I, I, I probably wanted it to be golden nuggets, but we weren't allowed them, so probably cornflakes without any sugar on them. Um, just about to go to school, and this song came on Radio 1, which was like something I'd never heard before. It was like a whole different world that wasn't, oh, baby. It was just like this world of mystery and, wow, what is this? I need to know more. And my sister brought home a copy of Smash Hits that weekend, and they were in it, even though they weren't a uh, pop band. And I looked at them, that not only are they making this noise that I've never heard before, they look like nothing else I've ever seen. So I saved up and bought that. Um, which album said it would have been Porcupine. So I bought that, fell in love with that, and through that I started really getting into music, because up to then I wasn't really that arse for music, it was football. But it was weird to say, well, then you know, get discovering the music of Paul Weller. But when I fell in love with music at my school, 
because it was in Merseyside, you were either into mm. the Bunny Men and that kind of stuff, or you had the really obvious stuff like, you know, The Jam, who were just coming to their end then, The Jam and all those sort of bands like that. And to me, they had no mystery. They were so straightforward. It was like, so under, you can understand everything, bricks and mortar. You know, it's straightforward. You know what the song's about before you listen to it. So I wasn't interested. And then the Style Councils formed. And my sister liked the Style Councils. So because my sister liked the Style Council, I thought they were shit. And they <laughs> refused to listen to them. The older sister likes them, they've got to be shit. <laughs> so to me, it was like, Paul Weller, the jam, the Style Council, that's that really obvious slightly punk band and then he's got this pop band who are on the radio all the time Ugh, not into that so i went off on this other path of getting into like you know the velvet undergrounds and then through that i got into really hardcore jazz and really full-on music and then through that i kind of went sort of through the jazz route and then really got into all the hip-hop and public enemy and everything i never had anything to do with the jam or the Star Council, never listened to them. So that was that's the answer to that. <laughs> I only got into Paul's music on a level that I thought, oh, God, he's really good, was the first solo album, because we'd already met him, because we used his studio to do a little bit of work on the very first Ocean Colour Scene album, the one that no one bought at the time. So his studio, Solid Bond, we did a little bit of work there. And it was the main studio. He came in to say hello, so he's, you know... Our guitarist, Steve Craddock, was basically like just sort of dribbling everywhere because he was a huge jam fan. And then in the Studio B, which is the back room, a guy called Brendan Lynch was finishing off Road to Freedom, the Young Disciples album. And I wasn't interested in what Paul was doing, but Brendan played me the track, which is with Carlene singing, Paul's playing guitar, Steve White's on drums. And I was like, oh, this is really good. And Brendan said, oh, yeah, it's quite style cancelling. And I was like, really? I must listen to the style cancel then. And then... Th- and then we got offered a couple of gigs with Paul supporting. So then I met Paul, met Steve White. We became mates immediately. And then it, that was then the path when I was, then Paul released his first solo album. And I, and I started listening to it. And I thought, actually, he's really good. <laughs> this so guy's got talent. <laughs> completely the wrong, completely circuitous route, like for probably like 10 years later than I should have. This is very similar to me, though, because my first discovery of Weller was the song Aha Oh Yeah. And hearing that on the radio and then buying the seven inch and, and going, you know, to everybody going to, there's this new guy, Paul Weller, is amazing. You've got to listen to him. And it, and it was only some older builders who kind of went, yeah, yeah, mate, you need to listen to the jam and gave me the greatest hits cassette and that. And then discover the Star Council. And every, and I probably had heard those songs, I'm sure, in my, in my youth. But but my first live gig was Paul Art Centre. So 1992, October 1992, Paul Art Centre. And you guys, Ocean Colour Scene, are supporting oh, Weller. Yeah. And this is around, this is, a, like you say, this is the first album, which I know you guys aren't that keen on when you look back on it but it didn't really work for you but that was such a massive thing for me that gig (laughs) yeah well in a weird way it kind of turned out to be a massive thing for um me and steve as well obviously and then you know analogously that's the correct word with you know for the rest of ocean color scene as well but yeah so pretty much the same gig then really (laughs) yeah how funny because yeah it was was you were supporting can't remember who was in weller's band at the time um i have to i mean obviously whitey but the rest of them i'm not entirely sure from the lineup turner was in the band i don't know who was on uh camille was on bass uh and that's as much as i can remember oh jacko peak on saxophone 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. When you first actually started playing music and getting into music, was the, was your first band the Fanatics? Was that right, or was there stuff before that? It was a band before the Fanatics, which mutated in the into the Fanatics. Though, having said that, I was in a band at school who I joined because um, I moved from Merseyside to the Midlands. Um, I had no mates because I was the one with the Scouse accent, and everyone else is talking like this. <laughs> you know, they couldn't understand me. And then the big kids, the cool kids, came up to me. They were like, you know, jostling me around a bit. And they said, oh, we've got a band. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I, I can play bass. I couldn't. <laughs> oh, really? I joined the band. So I thought, all right, I will. <laughs> so we did, a, we, did a, we did a gig the next week. We had one rehearsal. I couldn't play. So we did a gig. And uh, we, I could play the G major scale. So I just played that through about six songs that it well, it wasn't related to at all. But it was ace. So uh, that was my first band. And then I kind of learned to play a bit. <laughs> then I met Simon, who was already in a band, but his bass player was shit. So he asked me to dep one show. And then he said, you're not leaving. So then we kind of edged out the shitter members, got in some better ones. And then that mutated into the Fanatics. And the Fanatics is, is basically Ocean Colour Seamant without Steve Craddock. Uh, we already knew Steve because um, he was in a band called The Boys who were basically the jam. I mean, they were. They literally were. And I couldn't stand them. I thought they were terrible. Didn't like <laughs> Steve either. But Simon twisted my arm. He said, we've got to get rid of the guitarist. And he's like, we're going to get Steve in. And I'm like, no, we're not. I can't stand me shit. And what, what, one, I was really, really into Hendrix at the time. So Simon phones up Steve and says, the only way Damon's going to allow you in the band if you can play some Hendrix stuff. So Steve learned um, Hey Joe and something else. So, <laughs> We didn't even rehearse. Steve just plugged in and started playing Hey Joe, and I was like, all right, you're in the band. <laughs> that was it. Oh, amazing. Oh, the fact that we weren't friends, and I, th- I thought the band he had been in was rubbish. The fact he could play Hey Joe, it's like, mate, you're in. That'll do. At which point do you go, okay, this this is something now. Ocean Colour Scene, this is going to be something. The experience of making that album was horrible. And through that, because it was nothing that we wanted it to be is what it became. So we engineered it so we'd get dropped from the record label, which then gave us the belief that actually we'll do it our way. So then we just started writing songs that we wanted to write. Um, we had really crap recording equipment, started doing it ourselves. And I was doing all the engineering. Steve did a little bit, but I did most of it. And we had we had nothing. And we started to write these songs. Um, I think probably the earliest one was Day We Caught the Train, which ultimately we got bored of. But through that, then things like The Circle and what like, stuff like that started to come together. And we were like, oh, this is really good. We like this. And we didn't give a fuck if anyone else liked it. Because we'd made an album that everyone else liked, as in the business side of it, but we hated it. So it's like, we're going to make a record that we like. And if anyone in the business ever hears it, then great. If they don't, who gives a shit? At least we've made a record we want to make. Um, so that's when it started. When we, we just did it for ourselves. Nothing and no one telling us anything. We put some demos together and the guy who'd signed Weller, so this is um, Andy McDonald at GoDiscs, who'd signed Paul for Wildwood. He heard the demos, can't remember how, and he's like, you're awesome. I can't sign you because I've got enough room on the roster because he'd just signed Travis. He, and he had Weller, he had Portishead, and he had the Lars. And he's like, I haven't got room. But it's a bit more money to buy yourself a couple of better mics. Um, so we just carried on recording. Through that, then Noel heard the demos and asked us if we wanted to support. And then Weller was like, Craddock, you've got to come and play on tour. Damon, not yet, <laughs> because he's because uh, he was on bass. Yolanda was still playing with him. And that's how those things kind of rolled like right. that. You look back on those YouTube videos now of that time. You were kids, really, weren't you? I mean, you all look so young. Yeah, I would say so. 
25 is when I started pl- work with the Stanley Road Tour. So I was actually 25, 26, but I looked about 11. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah I mean, we were young, though. I mean, very young. Yeah. Hey, look, 25 years, though. Mosley Shoals, 25 years this year. And um, I want to talk about TFI Friday and the Riverboat Song because mm. that seems to kind of coincide. You talk about timing. I think TFI was, was out on the Friday, uh, the first episode. The Monday before was the release of Riverboat Song. The timing of it all kind of seemed to work so well. Chris Evans was a huge supporter of the band love you guys that's that riff and that opening opened the show every single week but that album was 92 weeks in the charts that album that is i mean you don't hear of anything like that these days massive huge and it still stacks up it still sounds great it's a it's a brilliant album yeah which is amazing because as i said it had no industry input in it whatsoever it was just us four doing exactly what we wanted to do. And then we brought in Brendan and Max to basically mix it because we couldn't mix it. We could record it and make it sound good to us, but not good enough to the level where, it, you know, it, you can release it yet. We just couldn't quite in the mix, the mixing bit right. So we brought in Brendan and Max, which, I mean, they turned it from being a great album into a masterpiece. I mean, and they don't get enough credit for that because, you know, obviously without the songs and the performances, it wouldn't be anything. But that extra layer they brought in, perfection. Really. It's, I mean, yeah, it's brilliant. And like, I mean, I can't believe 25 years has, has gone. Mm. It's incredible. You've got Weller playing on some of the songs as well. So I think he's playing like Organ on Riverboat song. He's playing The Circle. You mentioned um, One for the Road, doing backing vocals. So he's obviously really into what you're doing. And um, and when you think about that time, you think about a lot of the bands around that time as well. You, you mentioned Oasis and we'll get on to you supporting them in a sec as well. But The Verb, Sleeper, pulp blur these are kind of i mean indie bands essentially but indies mainstream i mean and if, if people can't you know weren't around those times or weren't paying attention to music at those times or, or maybe had done the jam and weren't interested in Britpop, it was massive wasn't it It was huge oh yeah i mean it's ridiculous it's in a book about oasis and it's a conversation that i'm having on the side of the stage with the guy who wrote the book i can't remember and noel or someone and oasis are about to go on about to go on and we've just played and before it blur we're playing and the verve were playing the next night and this is like you know some big festival somewhere and it's like how did it get to this because <laughs> basically it's just separate disparate bands making the records they want to make and for some reason Radio One's playing it all. This is the mainstream music, and it's cool. Mm. As opposed to mainstream music now, and before that, and after it, it was never, it was never cool. That mid period of the nineties was was really like the mid sixties in terms of the mainstream music was really good. You know, the cool music was what you'd hear on day on daytime radio. Yeah, it's funny because that was when I was starting my radio career as well and desperately wanted to be Chris Evans. So and I'd listened to him on GLR. He was then on Radio 1. It was TFI. It was Toothbrush. It was kind of like, you know, that's all I wanted to be. And the thing that I really wanted to do was just play these songs on the radio. So literally, yeah. I, I was kind of doing hospital radio shows. We were rec- yeah. I'm, going, I'm going around the wards requesting Jim Reeves and stuff and Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And every week, all I'm doing is playing Ocean Colour Scene well of like, all this stuff. They must, <laughs> be like, yeah, they must be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, but you were supporting Oasis and it was like hundreds of gigs, wasn't it? Hundred, like over a hundred shows you supported Oasis on tour. Yeah, from uh, before definitely maybe came out till Healing Chemistry. So I mean, we did uh, God, I don't know five hundred gigs with them or something. Wow, wow. Nebworth being one, which was like one hundred twenty thousand people or something ridiculous. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Nebworth was great. It's funny. That's when you said, you know, do you realise when you like got onto something? I think one of the defining moments for us as a four piece was because we'd had uh, loads of Radio One playing your bad hit singles. Is when we played Day We Caught the Train as a support band to 125,000 people, and there was 
quarter of a million hands in the air as soon as we started the song, you know, which I think we opened the set with it. And it's just like everyone has got their hands in the air. And you thought, we could be onto something here. <laughs> <laughs> this might work. This might work. <laughs> there might be a career in this. You never know. <laughs> um, so at that point, you then start in Paul's band. So I, there's a there's a clip I saw, um, and it's a Jaws Holland special for Stanley Road, I think it is. Which, um, is, the, which is the week that um, Ripwork came out. Oh, was it? So this is all complicated. <laughs> right. Where did you find the time? <laughs> there was one that in 96, me and Steve Craddock did 271 gigs with OCS and Weller. We recorded two Ocean Colour Scene albums, released shitloads of singles. I remember being one one day, there was a there was a seven-day week, obviously, as you had. We did five Weller gigs, two Ocean Colour Scene gigs, made a video and recorded four B-sides. <laughs> How? <laughs> wow. That's How? incredible. And it's funny when you like, meet musicians these days. I mean, obviously, uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID, they'll be the same. It's like, oh, I did two shows last week. Oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm knackered. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. But you must have been loving it. That's the thing. And there's this bit, oh, there's this Stanley Road special where you're on bass and you're doing high kicks all over the place. You're loving every, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, loving yeah. every second of it. <laughs> yeah. But that's a really exciting time. And Paul was back on top as well. So Stanley Road, Heavy Soul, again, you know, massive record sales, um, but massive gigs too. So what's it like? You're on stage. You've got 120,000 people in the audience that we just talked about. Let's talk us through that thing. So there's very few people I've, I've talked to about this. What, what's that like? What's it? You know, how much of you is enjoying it? Stroke terrified? Stroke oh, just no, concentrating or what? Oh, there's no terror. It's just funny <laughs> because it becomes baked beans when you do when you go past about four or five thousand capacity when. You, because you can see, um, you've got depending on the lights coming back in your face, you can generally see most of the audience. When you get past five thousand, it becomes the baked bean effect. So it just becomes abstract. And um, I know a lot of people will fall to pieces, but I guess, well, I know I speak for the rest of Ocean Colour Scene and for Weller, and most people I've played with Ashcroft as well. It's like I think it's that sheer sort of stubbornness, self belief, and also healthy sense of humour that gets you through it. And you end up just enjoying it. And you get to a point where you're not really concentrating on the music per se, as in, oh, I wonder what the next chord is. Because that's so ingrained in your subconscious. You're just enjoying the moment of playing this music and taking it different places. Even though you're still playing the song within its framework, it's always slightly different. So that hasn't really described it. (laughs) (laughs) You can't really, because, I mean, I've played in, I remember between Loch Lomond and Nebworth, so that's 80,000 people and 125,000 people, which is Saturday and Saturday. On the Wednesday, I ended up playing in goal at Dave Watson, who was the captain of Everton. It was his testimonial, Goodison Park, and I'm a massive Evertonian. I ended up playing in goal. They invited me against Glasgow Rangers. So I would say it was about, it was half full. So there was about 21,000 people there. That is the most nervous I've ever been. <laughs> that was totally different because my self-belief and sense of humour and sheer stubbornness wasn't there. It was like, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's amazing that you're kind of, you know, at this point you're touring the world with Weller, you're touring the world with Ocean Colour Scene. I mean, how you're juggling these two, you know, gigs, you're recording more and more hit albums like Marching Already and one from The Modern and, you know, collaborating with so many great people as well, which I'd love to touch on because um, there's a, there's a track um, I think it's Traveller's Tune, Tune where you're you're working with P.P. Arnold, who's yeah. who's so brilliant. I mean, the, yeah. you must have, I mean, you're living the life. I tell you, this must have been such an exciting time. And did, did you feel that confidence as a band when you were just banging out a hit album, oh, hit, single, yeah. hit single? You do, you do. But I mean, people have asked me this a lot. It's like, you know, what does it feel like? But when you're actually doing it on a day to day basis, 
it's what you do that day. So there's this sort of, you know, I suppose the revisionism and slightly rose-tinted way of looking back at it, you go, it must be amazing, which to look back it is, but while you're doing it, it's just what you're doing that day. You're then um, working with Weller on records. So I think, am I right in thinking the first track you played on was a Beatles cover? Was it Sexy Sadie? Sexy Sadie, yeah. Yeah, so which was a B-side of Out of the Sinking, I think, wasn't it? Out of the Sinking, yeah, because I'd gone down to the manor. He said, oh, Damon, come down, you f***. Um, but, um, How lovely! <laughs> what a lovely! Yeah, no, but in, in his in his sort of nice way, because um, I think Yolanda was doing stuff and Marco and Doctor Robert was like, yeah, just come down and we'll probably do like a B side or summer. So we did, you know. And then I think Yolanda finished that tour and he'd come up to our studio to do some guitar on the circle and he said, "This is Friday." He said, "What are you doing Monday?" I said, I don't know. I said, something with you probably. He said, right, come down to Blah 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 Studios. Uh, you're going to audition for the band. He said, and he gave me a set list with 72 songs on it. Didn't say I only want to learn 10. So what I did, I learned all 72 songs. <laughs> yeah, I didn't go to bed for 48 hours, but back then it was easy to do that. So I just stayed up 48 hours and learned all 72 songs. So I learned everything. Everything off Wild World, everything off the first solo album, some jam stuff, some style council stuff. Everything's on this list. And I probably learned them all badly, but I think you're so impressed that I actually learned every single song. Because he's like, which, which, which 10 did you learn? I said, what do you mean? When I got there on Monday, I said, I learned all 72. And he was like, fuck me. Whoa, that's amazing. Can you play him, though? <laughs> I just like, being cocky. I thought, yeah, just pick one. Oh, man. I can't remember it was. And we got through it. And he was like, well, right, you're in a band. Wow, as easy as that. Minus having to learn 17, 17 yeah. <laughs> How quickly was it into live performance and then working on the next album? Yeah, we rehearsed for three weeks, then we did the whole Stanley Road tour, which lasted, I don't know, God knows, about a year. That then carried on into, like, we were fitting Ocean Colour Scenes gigs in and around it, and then obviously Moji Shoals has just gone massive. So me and Steve then didn't play with Paul. From 96 to about 90 some point in 97 maybe because we just couldn't fit it in because mm. it had gone from Weller being there and I was closing there too much to Paul's chagrin <laughs> the other way so <laughs> we were doing festivals and we'd be headlining them and he'd be second I'd get our management together and our agents together so whenever you've got any shows or want to book some shows you speak your agent speaks to ours and we'll likewise we'll fit Miranda he's like it will never fucking work within a year that's what we were doing because it had to work, because it's like the chemistry between me, Steve, Steve and Weller was the same as the chemistry between me, Steve, Oscar and Simon. It's that sort of level of trust where we could actually just go on stage in the studio and be like, OK, this is, this is working. We don't, don't need to discuss it. Let's just get on with it. But the album output, I love. Heliocentric or heliocentric, recorded down at Chris Bifford's studio in Rye. You were setting off the fire alarms continuously by all smoking, I understand. Is this right? Yeah, Paul, like, Paul actually set fire to his bedroom. <laughs> So you can you can you can ask Chris if he fondly remembers um, Paul setting fire to a part of his property. <laughs> but there's a bit on the um, on the sleeve of the album where so you're obviously obviously you're, you're, you and um, Steve Craddock are credited, but it's, it says um, courtesy of Ocean Colour Scene. So it's almost like you're on loan in a way. We, we were always on loan, but you know, but you could cancel a loan at any any moment. Yeah, <laughs> like Chelsea, just recall the player if he's not playing well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Illumination, which again is a, is a, I mean, it's just a lovely album. There's some amazing tracks like you know, Bullet for Everyone, Leafy Mysteries, all good books, Standing Out in the Universe, all these great songs. And you're recording this at 
Black Barn, which is now Paul Weller HQ, but I don't think Weller owned it at that point. But also at Wheeler End Studios, which is, I mean, yeah. that sounds like a, I mean, the amount of history of that place as well. It was kind of weird because obviously I toured with him for about a year before we did any proper, apart from like B-sides and a few bits and bobs. Hmm. But we'd already built up that relationship, so there wasn't any discussion really. Um, and also Paul was like, Paul is, or would always do lots of demoing. And he got to the stage where the four of us would do the demos because previously Paul would demo on his own or with Whitey and then say to Pete, and he might go, oh, I've got an idea for a baseball or to cry like I've got an idea for a guitar part, but you could change it for what you had was better. But by this stage, it was like we would do all the demos together anyway and kind of not obviously not help him write the songs, but the arrangements of the songs would take place as we're just playing them. So by the time you got into the studio, you played the songs loads. So it was just a case of Paul not being... Paul being sober enough and not too grumpy to enjoy to enjoy it because at that stage he was getting quite heavily into booze, you know. So he, there was certain times of the day where it was going to work, right. and certain times of the day when it wouldn't. <laughs> but it became a really easy easy process. Not easy for him to write the songs, which is what one of the reasons why we ended up doing the covers album because I think it was the covers album after Illumination. I think Illumination was really hard for him to write. And I think it was Steve White's idea, actually. I remember us all being a bit pissed after a gig. And White was like, just do that fucking covers album you've been banging on about for years. <laughs> and he's like, oh, right, let's fucking do it. <laughs> well, that sounds amazing, I have to say. And I, and I love that because this is recording over, recorded over five weeks in Amsterdam, Studio 150, yeah. and a genuine success. I mean, it kind of outsold those two previous albums that you, that you mentioned. And this is tying in with your time touring all over Europe, touring the US, Tokyo, with Weller, Still, Ocean Color Steen still being massive and you're releasing uh, Mechanical Wonder or you've just released Mechanical Wonder and, and North Atlantic Drift and that's the band's sixth album but you're last with the band so there's this yeah. period where you go okay that's that's the end of Ocean Color Steen and I don't know how much you can kind of talk about that but it'd be lovely to understand that from your angle and then moving into the Weller band and that's Studio 150 because that seems like a quite a um, tumultuous period if that's the right word uh, yeah sort of but also I suppose at the time it had tumultuous days. But the reason why I left is because people have asked me this loads. And imagine you go to work with the same three guys every single day, like working in a factory or an office, and you all sit next to each other. You take your lunch breaks together. And at five o'clock, you all go home together. You have dinner together. You watch the the film together. You go to bed together. Separate rooms, but, you know, next door to each other. And on holidays, you all go away together. You all have Christmas dinner together for 15 years. Yeah. There comes a point where the way one of those three people you're with even opens their packet of crisps annoys the shit out of you. (laughs) And that's why I left. (laughs) Whose packet of crisps was it? (laughs) (laughs) I would never tell. (laughs) (laughs) That was was why I just had enough. There was a moment we'd done... um, done the full electric tour for North Atlantic Drift and I'd already decided I was going to leave I thought I will just give them one more album and then I'm out I was enjoying the music to some degree I wasn't enjoying hanging out with them anymore because it had just been so intense for so long and I was planning to do one more tour so we'd done the full electric tour, European tour for uh, North Atlantic Drift and we were doing an acoustic tour in Ireland and we'd done a show show was alright I was on the bus and I just thought, I can't bear it anymore. So I just went up to the bus driver, said, just stop the bus, I'm getting off. And he was like, oh, no, you're not. I said, no, I am, seriously. Got off, hitched the lift to the nearest village, 
found the B&B, woke up in the morning, said to the lady who owned it, can you get us a cab to go to the nearest airport, which was Dublin Airport, and just went home. That was it. Just left them to it. Blimey. Not so much the day day you stopped the train, the day you stopped the bus. Yeah, the day I got off the bus (laughs) unannounced. Wow. And I mean, that was kind of slightly weird because then that would have been 2004 and then I carried on with Weller for another three years, but obviously still playing with Steve. But Paul phoned me about two days later. He's like, I fucking heard what's fucking going on. Does that mean you're leaving my band? I said, no, Paul, it doesn't. He's like, well, it's fucking all right then. He said, (laughs) I have a word with Craddock and let him know. I said, yeah, please do. <laughs> so Paul phoned Steve to say, Damon's still playing with, with us. If you're all right with that. Another, it wasn't really a question. It was, you're all right with that. So then me and Steve like, were just like, we haven't fallen out, so let's just carry on. So it was kind of slightly weird to begin with, but yeah. then we just got on with it, you know. And then spend five weeks in Amsterdam together recording this album, right? Is that, is yeah. that how it works? So were you, you were camped up literally in Studio 150 is the name of the studio, the name of the album as well. Um, but th- I mean, I love that album. I think it's, and I'll tell you why, because I think the, the selection of songs is so what you would not expect. Wishing on a Star and um, Tim Harding, Don't Make Promises and Neil Young Birds. It's, Great, but you, but again, and I saw that live as well, 100 Club, um, yeah, yeah. which was just a brilliant, brilliant gig. But you guys, you know, you clearly enjoyed that. It felt like it was, a, was there kind of like a bit of a pressure valve release in terms of just having yeah. some fun and having a laugh with that album? Yeah, well, it was for Paul more than us because he was like, I haven't written these songs, you know, because obviously when you're in a band and you write songs, there was a huge amount of co-writing or collaboration that goes on with Paul, obviously. There's co-writing and collaboration to in terms of putting the music together, but putting the core song together, that is Paul on his, you know, that is Paul. Hmm. So to have that relentless pressure of having to come up with a whole bunch of songs, which is why Steve White said to him, just do the fucking covers album. And for Paul, he just loved it because it's like, I can play whatever I want. I can enjoy the playing and the recording as opposed to, is this song any good? Mm. Is it as good as my back catalogue? Will people think this? Will people think that? It's like, if they don't like it, it's a bunch of covers. So it's like, there's your get out. If people go, well, it doesn't sound like weather. It's like, oh yeah, it's a bunch of covers. Yeah. I mean, clearly it does. And it was a right laugh. It was really good. That was my favourite record I made with Paul. The whole social aspect as well was lovely. It was really nice. Well, it sounds like you're all just out on the piss in Amsterdam the entire time. Would that be right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about that being your favourite time. Um, as Is Now is the next album. Um, and we'll talk about this and talk about Live 8 as well, which is you know, ridiculously exciting. But As Is Now was recorded over the course of a couple of weeks in um, in spring. And on the record sleeve, Paul says about how it's such a joy to make and so many good memories and, and fun. Yeah, and I think because... Studio 150 had been so successful, he, he kind of thought, ah, oh. and he'd had all that time of not having to write songs. Because obviously when you make a record, it's the making of it and the touring of it, and you've got to wait six months before it gets released. So that kind of boxes off two years, which then gave him two years to write songs for whatever the next album would be. So he had a whole bunch of songs. Some of them were quite old, like Blinking Your Miss, it had been around since 92, but they never got the version he liked. We carried on the same way, we'll demo them. So we demoed them for about three weeks, just... You'd come up with, you know, you said, I've written a new song or here's an old one. We just keep playing through them. So again, by the time we hit the studio, we were kind of relatively well-oiled or, <laughs> and at times too well-oiled. <laughs> <laughs> Always pretty well lubricated, let's be fair. Yeah. And this was at um, Wheeler's End, which I mentioned. So this is, like, I mean, not only did it produce Robbie Williams' Angels, um, but there's also, um, you know, the likes of Kasavian, David Gilman, Deep Purple, Led Zepp, Madness. And Noel Gallagher liked it so much that he leased it for eight years. Um, can you remember, was, was it, I mean, was it a special studio, that? It was, yeah, it was really nice. It was really nice. But what was funny, it was, it was just full of Oasis's equipment everywhere. <laughs> 
they'd have to move their fucking stupid guitars and drum kits out of the way to actually do anything. You know, like Noel's 87,000 guitars would be everywhere. But no, it was, it, was, it was fun. But what was good about it, there wasn't quite enough accommodation. So I stayed at a hotel down the road. So I could actually, when we'd finish at two in the morning, you know, I was going back to that thing, you know, with the same three people in a factory and then you go home with them. It's like, when we actually finished that night, I would leave. Whereas poor Steve White was with the other Steve and Paul, who would generally stay up all night, you know. <laughs> so it was like, for me, it was great because I was in it, but I was able to just go night or early morning, <laughs> you know, yeah, two yeah, in the morning, yeah. I get my cab back to the hotel. <laughs> poor, poor old Steve White is getting the, um, getting the crisp packet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then t- tell me about Live 8. So this is July t- 2005, which is, seems like yesterday, but you play with The Who... You and Steve White, yeah? Yeah. Well, Steve White called... So we played on a Saturday, I think, yeah. Steve White called me on the Thursday. What are you doing tomorrow and Saturday? I said, well, I don't know, obviously something with you. He said, yeah, we've got, we've got a gig with The Who. We're going to rehearse tomorrow. I was like, have we? He said, yeah, just you and me. Because I thought, I thought he meant we're supporting, you know, as in, you know, Weller or something. He said, yeah, Zach can't do it because he's on tour with Oasis and Pino's making an album with D'Angelo. So Pete and uh, Rog have asked if we'll do it. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then I said, what's the gig? And he's like, oh, just a, 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 a small venue called um, Hyde Park and it's for Live 8. I was like, oh, fuck me. Yeah. All right. So we rehearsed for an hour the next day. Is that so, it? An hour? <laughs> One hour. And bear in mind, um, Won't Get Fooled Again is about 15 minutes long. (laughs) We played that song through twice, and Pete was like, great, I'll see you tomorrow. And then we did, you know, we played each, we played about eight songs through twice. And uh, they were there, that's it. And me me and Whitey were like, really? (laughs) We've only just got through the songs trying to remember what's coming next. And and they were like, yeah, that's it, we're done. See you tomorrow. And that's, I mean, worldwide audience, you know, billion plus. It's the biggest gig that's ever been and ever will be, the, the, the English one. One fourteenth of the world's population, so that's I don't know what the maths are, seven billion divided by two, watched it on TV. Wow. Yeah. And you're not aware of that obviously when you're playing. You're not thinking about that when you're playing or you're trying, no, not you're, at you're, all. trying you're trying not to, surely. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think what's how does the middle eight go? Because <laughs> <laughs> again, these songs weren't then ingrained in my subconscious because we, mm. we played them each twice. I mean I knew the songs to listen to, I didn't know to play them. But uh, where we did a good job, but what was funny, I phoned my mum the next morning and said, Mum, did you video it? And she said, Video what son? <laughs> <laughs> Back in the days of VHS. So yeah. Video what? Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, There's a couple of other gigs I want to touch on as well. Um, One was um, Amy Winehouse, because there was the Hootenanny gig, which Paul played on, which a lot of people talk about um, in 2006. But before that was the Electric Proms, and that's the one where you... And the whole band, Weller Band, played with Amy. And, I mean, I love that song. I love that version. It's such a special thing. Amy was lovely. She was really nice. She was, I mean, obviously, it wasn't long to go, but she still had it relatively together. She was lovely. I'd already met her a few times anyway, so I kind of knew her, and I knew her management really well. A guy called Ray Cosbert, who, unfortunately, was the guy who found her when she died. He um, was a really good friend of mine. He was actually the promoter promoter's rep for Ocean Colosseum, so we'd known it. I'd known Ray for about eight years. So I kind of knew her, and it was, again, it was one of those things where, oh, here's Amy, she's going to come down and play. It was like, cool. You know, I mean, I've played with Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, you have that healthy sense of humour where you go, 
This is just silly. So you just get on with it, you know. Because if you stop to think about it, you you probably would be like sort of all like trying to walk through tar or something, you know. You'd be like, oh god, I can't handle it. Um, so that was lovely, and uh, she made a great cup of tea as well. Actually, she made a proper <laughs> oh. cup of tea. You can see like looks in the eyes of the band playing, who are kind of going, "This is special. This is yeah, like, yeah. this." I mean, was that the feeling you were kind of going? Actually, do you know what oh, this yeah. is like? Yeah, totally. What I love about that gig, which has got nothing to do with Amy, the version of Porcelain Gods we played. Which Someone sent me a link on YouTube the other day and I actually listened to it properly. It's so good. It's like, what a band that was. And it's weird, quite rare to watch back something that you've been involved with and or listen back to, I should say. And you go, oh my God, that's really good. Because normally you can pick holes in it and be like, oh, that Mitch Jummer was a bit late there or oh, that bass note was a bit whatever. It's like eight minutes of utter fucking genius. Right. You know, it's like that band was right on the edge of it, you know. But there's also the Brit Awards. So Paul finally turns up at the Brit Awards yeah. after years of asking. And again, this feels like yesterday, but um, I think it was, was it Ray Winston who introduced him, if I remember right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, for like a Lifetime Achievement Award. All those kind of nights, do they stick in your memory as special things? Well, what sticks in my mind about that one is like the song, uh, Come On, Let's Go. It's got a really tricky bass part. Suppose they called the two pre-choruses and Paul would always have, because he, he was amazed that I could play that and I came up with it because it's really hard. Hmm. What he doesn't know, I can semi-nicked it off a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. Just change it. I, change, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know, but I know. No one would know. I mean, Flea might be able to tell slightly. But anyway, it's really fucking hard to play. And Paul would have this running joke when he counted in. He'd always count it in slightly too fast. So just before it starts, I don't know if you, if you, if you, if you watch the TV footage, he goes up to me. He's going to go, I'm going to I'm going to catch you out. <laughs> Bearing in mind, this is going out live on the Brits. And he counts it in so fast. <laughs> Yeah, but I can play even faster than you can fucking count it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great song. I mean, that and Floorboards Up from that album. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're just cool. brilliant songs. And I, and I think there's um, there's a live album around that time as well. Is it Catch Flame, I think? Yeah, that was that one. Yeah. Which is like Ali Pali. And um, again, for me as a fan, such a special time. I went so many gigs around that time. I loved all the songs that you were playing and because you were digging into some of the back catalogue, like Into Tomorrow and even some of the jam stuff like Thick as Thieves and obviously Malice was getting played and stuff. When you were playing those jam songs and actually Come On, Let's Go and uh, Floorboards Up would have the same reaction, but the crowd would go mental for those, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny, though, I suppose, because I'd experienced all that with my own band, the fact that people would go mental for songs, you kind of got used to it. And the fact they're going for mental for songs that, yeah, you're playing in that moment, but they historically mean more to the audience than they did to me. You know, like, dum, 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 ba, dum, bum, to me, it was like, that's the bass line to Tank and Malice. Yeah, it's a cool song. Whereas you could, the people in the audience are like, this is their entire life at this moment because they're jam fans. Whereas for me, as, it, you know, as I said at the start, Jamish, jam were boring. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I didn't have that emotional resonance, even though I got to like them, obviously. So, you know, even playing, you know, uh, oh God, in the crowd and all that kind of stuff, where people are just losing their shit. But the one that used to get me is when we used to do um, a Star Council song. Oh, not ever changing moods. Like grown men crying. I mean, literally just crying. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's hilarious. In a good way, because I, I could see what it meant to them, you know, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, and it's that power of music. And we'll come on to that with what you're doing now, because I think that's really interesting. But so your last Weller gig was Glastonbury 2007, along with yeah. Whitey. Was that right? So, yeah. um, and, I, and I've read stuff with Steve, and I'm hoping Steve will come on the podcast and, and chat with us as well. But it felt like a natural end. It felt like it, it was kind of time to change for both Paul and, and for you guys. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, totally. You could tell it was one of those. And then there was no falling out. There was, there was no nothing. And it was harder for Steve, obviously, because he'd been with Weller at that stage for 
30 years or something ridiculous, you know, from the start of Star Council 2 to straight through to 2007 with never a gap. Yeah, it just felt like the right time. Paul does from time to time anyway, doesn't it? It's like, sort of like, okay. And it wasn't like we were sacked or anything. And I remember Paul phoned up Whitey to say, um, you know, Oh, are you two going to come back and play? And then Paul and Whitey was like, I'd have to speak to Damon, but I think I can speak on his behalf and definitely on my behalf that it's probably time for you to explore other options. And, you know, Paul was like, yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. Yeah, let's do that. But then obviously Steve's gone back and played with Paul. Sometimes I'm Paul always, Paul phones Whitey pretty much every week. And it's always like, how's Damon getting on? What's he doing? Oh, that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but it's also like, why, why, you know, it says, Paul, you know full well what he's doing. <laughs> you, know, you know full well he's done this and you know full well he's playing with Ashcroft and yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And also give him, give him a ring yourself. Bloody hell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Your relationship with Steve White obviously is massively important because I think we're on to three different bands with Steve, right? Yes, so many things, yeah. And he's godfather to both my kids. What is it about him that's that as a, a man, but also as, as a drummer, that makes him so special? Well, a lot of people talk about drummers, you know, their technical ability and all that. And Steve is one of the most technically proficient drummers. But I know drummers who are even better at technique. They can play faster and more odd time signatures and all that shit. What makes Steve a great drummer is what makes him a great person is that he cares. He cares about what it is he's doing and with the people that he's doing it with. That's that's what it is. Because you get that humanity that great musicians have. They have empathy with everyone they're playing with. Even if they don't necessarily like them at that moment, it's like what they're creating that right at that moment is super important. And that's what marks great musicians at, you know. So that's what's special about Steve, very much so. So we've had um, Trio Valor, which these are all very different bands, and I'm guessing that's why they're called different things, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Trio Valor is this kind of that mod, instrumental, kind of soul funk thing. There was the Players, which also, actually thinking of a Weller connection, also had Mick Talbot on as well yeah. from the Style Council with, with you and Whitey. And then the Family Silver, which is you, Steve White and Matt Dayton, who's the um, the guy from Mother Earth. And again, very different. I mean, that's more rock, quite hard, quite in your face. Yeah. Every time, is Whitey just your go-to drum where you're like, do you know what? Oh, whatever, whatever genre is going to be him, he's brilliant. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And, and you know, likewise, the other way around as well. I mean, I used to do a hell of a lot of drum clinics with Steve, which were good fun for a while, because <laughs> there's only so much drum as you can take. <laughs> He would always be, I'd be like, Dem, can you do it? Can you do it? Can you do it? And purely because we built up that empathy of playing together that we don't even need to, we're always listening to each other, but we kind of know what the next, what, even when we're improvising, you kind of know where the next person's going to take it. And you trust them as well. You know? That's so important, isn't it? Because you, you mentioned yeah. that with, with the with the Ocean Colour Scene guys and with the Weller Band, that trust in a band and knowing that you can kind of, presumably then play off each other and go in slightly different direction, but but know that you're all going to follow that direction. So, you know, it's like whose line it is anyway, almost, isn't it? Like the improvisation. Oh, God, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, remember the, um, the bass player from the Bunny Man, Les Pattinson, who, um, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be a musician. He mem- I remember him saying to me, being in a great rhythm section is like the best rally in tennis and you don't need to beat the other person. It's that bit when you're both in the moment and it's just going backwards and forwards, but you don't have to fight each other. Yeah. It's almost like you're playing for a draw. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> a couple of questions, other questions before you go. So um, it'd be lovely to talk about Richard Ashcroft because I think your stuff obviously with him, so the guy who was the Verve, but now um, has been solo for Lord knows how many years, but you're playing with him on record and, and live. What are the kind of similarities between an artist like that and, and Weller? Well, Richard is, is, for me, is the best person I've ever played with. Like, hands down. He's the funniest, 
kindest, most talented musician I've ever worked with. And that's not me having to go at anyone else because Paul's an amazing um, songwriter, really good singer, really good musician, good performer. Richard's different. Richard, it doesn't come from any intellectualizing. There is no thought. It's purely from inside him. It's weird because Richard doesn't know many chords. He's not, he hasn't studied anything. It's purely from spirit. And, and that's why his performances live are insane. And, you know, I would do two-hour shows with Weller, sometimes two-and-a-half-hour shows where you come off tired, same with OCS, same with XYZ. When you play with Richard for an hour and a half on stage, when you come off, you have nothing left. I mean, literally, it's all on the stage. And I always feel sorry for the road crew because it must be the most nastiest thing to clean up afterwards. You literally <laughs> leave everything on the stage. And it was a really good time for me as well with Rich because I hadn't fallen out of love with music at all. But when Rich got in touch, said, you know, do you want to play? Because I'd known him for years, obviously through the verb and all that kind of stuff, and we said hi at festivals and loads and always got on. And he was born in the same hospital as me, just outside um, Wigan, a place called Billinge, where also Leon Osman, the Everton legend, was born as well. But that's by the way. Um, <laughs> so it felt really nice. And as soon as we get, got into rehearsals together, we just started playing, I don't know, whatever song it was, some of these people which we were just about to record. And it was like, oh, this is perfect. Again, it was that thing where you go, oh, it feels right. Like mm. it felt right with the, um, the Ocean Fillers and Balls, with Steve White, with Weller. It was like straight in like that. Oh, this is working. One thing we also should talk about is what you're doing now. And um, and I think to, to get into what you're doing now, we have to always rewind a little, I think, to, to Halloween 2009. And I hope you don't mind me yeah. talking about this, but um, this sounds horrendous. So what happened? You, you, you're back off tour. What did you do? <laughs> I was, um, well, I was jet lagged and I shouldn't have even been up, but I was putting some Halloween decorations on the front of the house. It was like a toy spot, stuck some cap spider and I went to put it on. It fell off. I thought I'd push it a bit harder, put my hand through the window. Because I was sober, I pulled my hand straight back out. Next thing I know, I've come to, because I was unconscious in hospital and my tendons were hanging out. Oh, and the piece of glass less than a millimetre for cutting through the nerves for these two fingers, which as a bass player... <laughs> I mean, they're all important, but these two are the most important. <laughs> and I've, you probably can't see it here, but maybe for leaning, it's yeah, fake. Yeah, a bit of yeah, massive scar yeah. where my tendons are rebuilt, which means I can only move my hand back that much. But again, playing bass, it's that bit that's important. So these yeah. work fine. And I know where you're taking this. So I couldn't play for six months. And I came out of hospital. This hand surgeon says, you can't play for six months. We still don't even know if you're going to be able to play guitar again. I was going to ask, was there an element where you were kind of thinking, maybe this might be never again? Yeah, the surgeon said, we've got rid of the glass. The tendons are okay, but you might not have the speed and the the feeling to be able to play again, ever. Wow. What? What are you going to do? But then I got got um, a university in Bristol, phoned up two weeks later and said, can you come in and do a master class? I said, well, I explained you know, I just have to talk about music. I can't do anything. And so I went, I did it and they loved it. And they said, that was um, so inspirational. Do you want a job? And I said, well, all right, only for a little bit, because I'm hopefully I'll be able to play again. So I started doing lecturing. Then I got the go ahead to play again. I thought, well, I'll just carry the two on. And then my wife, she was like, will you stop complaining about what you're reading in academic books about music? I said, yeah, but it's all bullshit. They don't know what they're talking about. She said, just do a PhD and write your own book. And I was like, no, I want to be interested. About two weeks later, I thought, fuck it, I'm going to do it. So I wrote an idea for a, a PhD thesis, sent it off to loads of universities. Bear in mind, I don't have a degree. But to actually do a PhD, you're supposed to have a degree and a master's. Half the universities said, we haven't got any qualifications. The other half were like, it's amazing. 
We don't care about the regulations, just come and do it. So seven years of mad hard work later, I became a doctor of philosophy. Amazing. Well done, you. Bloody and hell. weirdly, by the time I became a doctor of philosophy, I was like, I've had enough of teaching now because I can play <laughs> properly and I'm starting to do a fair bit of production. So I basically reduced my teaching to the bare minimum. And now I produce records, songwriting. So there's this um, lady called Rose Gray, who's all over Radio 1 at the minute. She's daytime Radio 1 play. Me and my production partner, this guy called Tom Manning, who used to own Mono Valley Studios, uh, which is the one that Oasis did their first two albums at. So we used to own that. We've now got our own studio together in, in Monmouthshire and we've got our own songwriting and production company together. And we're managed by the same people who manage the Libertines, Tom Grennan, Ash and Eco, Supergrass, yada, yada, yada. So what I'm doing now, even though I'm qualified to teach music forever, as little teaching music as possible and actually doing songwriting and production and mixing and, and what have you. So, fabulous, yeah. fabulous. Um, and, and I know last weekend we were we were meant to chat last weekend and you were still in the studio. So is so that working with Rose? Yeah, so that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Because there was a thing where you got a job as well, right? So you got, didn't you? you oh, yeah. Yeah, you got like an interview and they offered you a job within half hour or something. Yeah, yeah, to- oh, totally. I get it all the time. I get, you know, it's not supposed to work this way in universities. You know, they do put jobs out for tender, but I always get headhunted for like everything. Yeah, even Cambridge University sent me an email about six months ago saying, no, uh, there's a position in our music department. We want to bring in a focus of uh, someone, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, basically saying someone who's, a knows what they're talking about. B is famous, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, and you, you know, it's supposed to be off the record. And then, you know, please apply for it. You know, you, your your application will be treated very positively. In other words, apply for it. You will interview. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, I don't do them now because it's like I'm producing, co-writing with people. It's like this is exactly what I should be doing at my age. There's something about it's interesting doing this podcast where, um, you know, and and the whole point is I've not presented radio shows for ten years plus now, actually. But as you get into, it, as you start making things again, and you get to edit and all that stuff, you go, oh yeah, this. Why did I stop doing this? This is this was lovely. This is fun. And there must be an element for that for you. Like when you're in a studio, your natural environment, like you said, right back from the very beginning, the very start of Ocean Colour Scene, there must have been a bit where you're just kind of like, yeah, this is bloody brilliant. Why am I not doing it? I love it. I absolutely love it. And again, it's my wife's fault. She's the one who pushed me into doing the PhD. And then again, I started after a while, I'm complaining about teaching. And she's like, various artist management, they will represent you as a producer. You know, they love you. You know, you're always doing stuff for them, playing for them. They will take you on. I'm like, nah, they won't. She said, just bloody give them a call. So I phoned him up. My mate John, who's, who's my manager, he's like, yeah, you're in. Let's do it. I've already got some artists. Have you got a studio? I'm like, my mate Tom. Tom, like, yeah, let's get together. Let's form. Let's form a partnership. Bang. And I love it. And I love. It. We've got loads of people in. And it's really nice working with people who are just starting to make it. Mm. So they're not, it's not the amateur thing and it's not the jaded thing. It's like they've done a few EPs. They're about to start the album. Record labels go to the management, you know, who, who, who would be a good producer? And then they get in touch with my management company and they go, you should try out Damon and Tom. So they come down. We make sure everything is amazing. And the artists go away again, want to do the album with them. Wow. And it's also that thing because I bring in all my experience. And Tom's an amazing engineer and producer and co-writer as well. And he's worked on crazy, I mean, crazy big records as well. So you just bring it all together and it's just like, it's that thing, you know, it's that creative environment of being in the studio. But I also then don't have to go and stand on stage with them because I look far too old. <laughs> but instead, then I've got all the Ashcroft stuff, you know. So when we're out of lockdown, we've already, we're back on doing, doing shitloads of gigs, which is the other part I utterly love because you can't replace that bit. 
of being on stage and getting the whole from the audience. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and likewise from an audience member, being you know being in the mosh pit and seeing you guys and <laughs> is part of the whole thing as well. So, hey, Damon, this has been absolutely wonderful. I've I've enjoyed every second of this. Thank you so much. I've got two final questions for you, if that's all right. So the first question is: You're allowed one Weller song for the rest of your life. Which one is it? It can be the Jam, the Star Council, or Solo, but you're only allowed one. Strange Museum. Oh, oh, I love that song. Yeah. Why that one? We never played it live. We did it in rehearsals once. We had to change key because Paul couldn't sing it. We'd all, apart from Whitey, had quite a lot of spliffs beforehand. <laughs> so stoned when we played it. And it sounded like the most amazing song of treacle you've ever heard. And that is all my memory of that song because we never took it further. We never tried to play it again. Because yeah. it was almost like this is a perfect moment, which is probably where probably not hearing it the way it actually sounds. And to me, that every time I hear that song, it just takes me back to that moment. So strange museum. Final question for you is the entire point of this podcast is to get that interview with Paul Weller, the one that I've never managed to get in my entire <laughs> radio career. Uh, if I do, what should I ask him? <laughs> oh, God. Shit. Oh, there's so many things I could I yeah, I should say you should ask him, but they you'd probably get sued. Uh, um, okay. If you ever do, ask him about the time he stuck his tongue in my ear. Oh. I will leave it there. Okay. Erotic. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> it, I'm, I'm gonna say quite frankly, it was scary. Okay. <laughs> But, recreating but, the long hot summer video <laughs> yeah oh, good god no you have to ask steve about that but no seriously when you get in touch with steve just uh, just say that i've been on and i've absolutely loved it and you'll probably send me a text to say is it, is it kosher and you should, he'd be brilliant you'd love it he'll definitely do it oh damon this has been a joy thank you so much for your time i really okay. appreciate it i have to yeah. say also well done to your wife she's had super smart giving you the best, the best well, she, advice ever she just came in then to, to, to remind me that i was supposed to have taken my son somewhere about 15 minutes ago so. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do without her? Uh, thank thanks. you so much, man. All the best. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dan. Bye. My thanks once again to Damon Minchella. What a lovely guy. You can find out more details about his work on the show notes for this podcast. Next up, photographer Martin Goddard takes us through his jam archives. Now, for avid consumers of jam vinyl in the late 70s and early 80s, Martin's photographs need little introduction. Don't forget to share this episode on social media. You can find me on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.